Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all the people of the Lord said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. Matthew 6, 9 says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lift up your hearts. Let us pray. Father God, your son taught us to pray in such a way as to remind us that you are high above us, ruling from heaven, not contained within creation, but sitting in sovereign lordship over it. Not only that, but you are hallowed, you are holy, and there is none like you in glory, majesty, might, or worth. So we come to lift our prayers and praises to you, the great God, the great king above all gods. Your greatness both makes us feel our smallness and our insignificance, but rushing in behind that truth is the fact that you sent your son to save lost mankind and make us your beloved children. We are small, but you are great, and your greatness shines brightly in the fact that you moved heaven and earth to save us by your Son, our Lord Jesus. So, Almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. This week, Governor Cuomo of New York signed the Reproductive Health Act into law, while the New York legislature joyfully applauded. This act does three things, basically. First, it moves abortions from the penal code to the public health code, effectively decriminalizing most instances of the death of an unborn child, whether through an abortion or through simply a violent act on the mother. Second, it expands who may perform an abortion from physicians to any healthcare professional. Third, and most heinous, it removes the current 24-week ban on abortion and allows a baby to be aborted at any point of a pregnancy if the fetus isn't viable or the health of the mother is in danger. The cash-out of this law is that a psychiatrist could diagnose a mother who is nine months pregnant as mentally endangered by the birth of the child, and her midwife could give the baby a lethal injection, induce birth, and dispose of the carcass without anyone facing any criminal charges. To make it all worse, Governor Cuomo lit up the World Trade Center tower pink in celebration of this atrocity. Now, I do want to commend our congregation for all of your activity to fight for the unborn. You've marched, shared articles online, maybe even argued a little bit online, volunteered at pregnancy centers, called representatives, and adopted orphans into your homes. However, we live in a nation where such an atrocity can take place and the National Guard isn't mobilized to put a halt to such a miscarriage of justice. Further, this slaughter of the unborn takes place daily, less than a mile from here in our local hospitals. New York State needs repentance. She and our nation remain under God's judgment and deserve to become a smoking crater. If we desire our nation to come to repentance, we in the church must exemplify true repentance. Have you deleted the apps you use to access porn? Have you sought forgiveness from the friend you slandered? Have you finished the job you promised to get done but left half done? 
Have you stopped making excuses for why you keep committing that same sin? Have you fled from your sin, burning down every bridge of temptation as you go? If we are so sluggish and sloppy in our repentance, should we expect New York and our nation to do any different? Matthew 6, 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father God, the blood of 61 million slaughtered babies cry out in judgment upon our nation. We have no excuse. Our nation is guilty and we deserve your wrath. Yet we are your people. We have tasted and seen that you are good, merciful, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love. Show mercy, grant repentance to our nation. Start here on the floor of this gym Convict us of our individual sins and give to us a holy hatred of our own transgressions. Then may this sinful nation turn back to you and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of pardon. Matthew six fourteen says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The good news of the gospel is that though our sins are black as midnight, God has gone about to restore us unto himself through the forgiveness found in Christ. And it is only because of Jesus that I can declare with confidence that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The sermon text is taken from 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at verse 17. We're picking up in the middle of the story. This, these are the words of God. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and I will take away thy posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger, and made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dieth in the field, shall the fowls of the air eat. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? 
because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have not left us as orphans in this world. You have not left us in the dark, but you have sent your son, Jesus, to be the light of the world. Father, we thank you that in him, mercy and truth have kissed. In him, justice and peace have been accomplished. Father, we ask that you would now uh, use your word to address us right where we are. Address us in our weakness, correct us, admonish us, comfort us, encourage us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, committing abominations, following idols, and stirred up to such great evil by his wife, Jezebel. This story that I've, I've come into the middle of, it, it, this, is, this is insane, it's crazy, it's appalling, it's terrible and astonishing all at the same time. He's just done this horrible thing and, and, and as if we, we needed to be reminded how evil he is, uh, we, we hear it yet again and we, and, we, and we finish hearing how evil he is and, and you know, we, we're at the point where you hear Ahab's name, you, you, know, you just want, you spit, right? It's awful, he's awful. And then verse 27, and it came to pass when Ahab heard these words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, right. You think we're gonna believe that? Nice show, Ahab. The Lord doesn't respond that way. After all that Ahab has done, verse 28 says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Ahab is this wicked man. There was no one as wicked as Ahab. And yet when Ahab humbled himself before the Lord, the Lord relented. The Lord noticed. The Lord was impressed. The Lord relented from the immediate judgment he had promised. This story reminds us that God's merciful kindness is great. God's merciful kindness is way worse than you thought. And by that I mean better. It's more gratuitous. 
It's more insane. It reaches to the heavens. And so this is the simple thing that I want us to meditate on this morning from this passage. God's merciful kindness is great. And to do that, I really wanna get a running start. And so I wanna back up to where we first met Ahab so you can just feel the weight of this. Maybe, maybe you've read through this recently, maybe not, but, but really that summary statement in 25 that there was no one like Ahab, I mean, really review it for a second with me. Just, just underline it, just how bad it has been. So we first meet Ahab back in chapter 16 when he becomes king of the northern kingdom of Israel called Samaria. And we're told there when he becomes king that Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. That's 16 verse 30. It underlines it. And, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Under Ahab's reign, Jericho was rebuilt. Remember, Jericho is that first city that had been taken by Joshua in the conquest. And Joshua had actually prophesied that if this city is rebuilt, it will be rebuilt in the blood of, of a man's sons. And sure enough, that's what happens. Verse 34, and in his days, talking about Ahab's reign, did Heel, the Bethlehite, build Jericho, and he laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. The implication, of course, is that Ahab is, is, is not only allowing this to happen, it's, it's bad enough in his days that people do this brazenly. Ahab approves of it. It's happening under his watch. Ahab is blessing it. He's leading by example and saying, it doesn't matter, there's no God, do what you will. Under Ahab's reign, of course, Ahab comes immediately into collision with the prophet Elijah. And, and, and things are never good between Ahab and Elijah. They're, they're rocky from the start. He comes and just announces a, a drought. Of course, this is followed by the great showdown between Ahab's prophets of Baal and Elijah three years later. So he announces the drought in chapter 17, and then in chapter 18, you have the great showdown. And then following the slaughter of all the, Baal, all the prophets of Baal, Jezebel swears she will kill the man. And so we have uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel, uh, they've, they've put wanted signs up everywhere, and Elijah is on the run for his life in chapter 19 forcing Elijah into exile in the wilderness. Remember, Elijah is wishing to die, uh, rehearsing all the wickedness that Ahab and Jezebel have done, particularly murdering the prophets of God. Just before our text in chapter 20, Ahab is just... Uh, just displayed sort of manic-like bouts of rage and depression. 
The Lord gave Ahab this great military victory, but Ahab failed to deliver a crushing blow. And so he goes home after the man of God comes to him and says, you didn't do it all. You didn't finish the battle. You didn't finish it. You didn't crush the enemy like God wanted you to. And so because he's been rebuked like this, Ahab goes home and, and it says that he, he, the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. He's fussing and cranking and mad and furious. And then following this in chapter 21, Ahab, of course, goes to try to buy Naboth's vineyard, but failing that, he once again throws a royal fit on his bed, 21 verse four. And it, it is after his wife, Jezebel, has orchestrated the lynching of Naboth that our text picks up with the Lord instructing Elijah to go to Ahab and pronounce his sentence of the utter destruction of his family. Verses 17 through 24. And it's here that the narrator once again reminds us as if we needed reminding that Ahab was a really bad guy. There was none like Ahab who had done wickedness in the sight of the Lord. But when Ahab tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, fasts, and goes about in humility, the Lord takes notice and tells Elijah that Ahab has humbled himself and therefore the judgment will be postponed. This whole story really is astounding. And I think, I think it helps maybe again to underline this even more. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes for a moment. We've just rehearsed the whole story, but put yourself in Elijah's shoes in particular when this word comes in, in verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel. Again, you're, you're Elijah. Go, go talk to a, what, again? Really? Again, just, and, and think of all the interactions between Elijah and Ahab. It's not just how wicked Ahab has been, but at every point along the way, God has sent Elijah, at almost every point of the way, Elijah's been the messenger of the bad news. You've been wicked again. Bad stuff's gonna happen again. And Ahab hates Elijah. So you have, you know, Ahab has married this, this daughter of the king of the Sidonians who champions Baal worship, who is, who's led the murder of the prophets of the Lord. You've got prophets in hiding still, presumably, in caves separated from their families, separated from their children. Remember Jezebel's oath to kill Elijah, him running for his life. Remember Elijah's exhaustion and deep discouragement, even after the Mount Carmel showdown. The people of Israel have turned again, like even after that, I mean, they, they sort of have this show of, yeah, the Lord is God, he's God, but apparently there wasn't just this massive uprising and it, it didn't just all get better. So now Elijah's on the run. The people of God have turned away. Remember Ahab's just, he's just an awful person. 
He's, he has an awful attitude. He's just not nice to be around at all. He gets angry and he's moody. He's conniving. And so Jezebel's just plotted Naboth's murder. And I mean, think of Naboth's family. Wife, children, grandchildren, perhaps. Their father, their grandfather's been murdered in cold blood. Their inheritance stolen. The assignment of going to Ahab yet again to announce God's judgment would have been a very hard assignment. Arise, Elijah, and go down to meet Ahab. What? What? What good would that do? Why tell him about his wickedness again? There was no one who had sold himself to work more wickedness in the sight of the Lord than Ahab. And then you have Ahab's initial greeting, which, I mean, just, they're, they're, they're not off on the right foot. I mean, there's never a good foot with Ahab. There's never a good foot with Ahab and Elijah. Elijah shows up. He says, okay, God, I'm going. He gets there. And Ahab says to Elijah, hast thou found me, O mine enemy? You're Elijah. You're like, never mind. Right? This is not going to go well. I mean, there wasn't even sort of a semblance of like, okay, maybe we can have a conversation. There's not a conversation. Are there people in this world, are there people in your life that seem to fit in this same category? Could they be more hard-hearted? Could they be more antagonistic? Could they be more of an enemy and is there something inside of you that says, why even bother? What good will it do? I've tried to tell them before and they don't listen. Lots of people have told them, they don't listen. They won't listen. They hate God, they hate me. They hate... Why bother? What good will it do? Part of our problem is that we've been fed the lie and frequently we have bought the lie, we have owned the lie, we have believed the lie that we must choose between law and grace, high standards and mercy. This is the lie that we're being fed frequently is that you have to choose between law and grace or high standards and mercy. And, and, and so this is all there is. Either you're a, you're a rule keeper, a rule follower, a rule guy, law guy into this hard standards and high standards or else you're a mercy person, you're a, a love person, you're a kindness person, you're a nice person. We're told over and over again that those are your options. Either you care about the truth and the high standards or you love mercy 
and you don't worry about those things so much. But this is the one thing as Christians we must not do. This is because there is no radical, life-changing grace apart from the law establishing your pitch-black guilt. It is not the radical grace of God if there was not the radical condemnation of the law. It wasn't the bright, light-giving light if you weren't utterly lost in the dark. Listen to this from Psalm 85. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85, 10. Mercy and truth are met together. That's one way you could just say that. That's... that's the message of God's word. That's the message of the gospel. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Or or remember so many of the the greetings of the letters in the New Testament when when Paul is writing or John or Peter or others, uh, they they frequently, they frequently greet the Christians with this combination of grace and truth. This is from 2 John. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. Mercy and truth, righteousness and grace can only be rightly held together in Jesus Christ. They can only be rightly held together in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, well-meaning people will veer between crushing legalism and sentimental licentiousness. And frequently, they will, they will come to, after veering for so often, you say, well, you just have to pick one. You either have to care a lot about rules and, and high standards and regulations, or you just need to get over yourself and just be nice. Because people without Christ without Christ in them, without mercy and truth in them, in Christ, they will veer between a crushing legalism and a sentimental licentiousness. We will swerve between pure condemnation and a pliable accommodation. You'll run with your rules. You're not following the rules. This is wrong. Your justice, your truth which will be crushing, which will condemn. And that's discouraging. Or you'll throw your arms up and say, what's, I guess, you, I guess it doesn't matter. So both of these fail to believe that God can change people. When you veer from one side to the other, you're fundamentally, uh, you're, you're fundamentally giving up that God can affect a change because if all you're doing is running the law play and the rule play and the high standard play, you're just, you're just full of condemnation. You did it again. You did it again. You, you did it again. And, and there you are. 
which is really discouraging for them and for you. But the flip side is you say, all right, I'm tired of being mean. I don't want to be the angry guy. I don't want to be the fusser. I don't want to be the, the, the condemner. I want, to, I want to be nice. I want to have friends. But then what, you, what are you doing? You say, it's okay. You just be whoever you want to be. Make it up as you go along. It's fine. No, it's just fine. You just do whatever you want to do. What are you doing? You're leaving them in the dark also. It's frustrating to them because they know something is wrong and it's still deeply frustrating to you because you know there's something wrong. Fundamentally, every refusal to hold mercy and truth together is a rejection of Jesus. Mercy and truth have kissed in Jesus. Mercy and truth have met together in Jesus. In Jesus, you have perfect justice, holiness, perfection, the highest standards there could be. And in Jesus, we have real life-changing mercy. So this is why we have to insist on proclaiming the full horror of sin. As Christians, we insist on proclaiming the full horror of sin in all its hideousness because Jesus was crucified for hideous sin. We proclaim the hideousness of sin, the horror of sin, the darkness of sin, the full blackness of sin because that's where Jesus went. On the cross, Jesus went down into death itself. He went down into the dark. He went down into the horror. He went down into the hideousness of our sin. And this is why you can proclaim, Elijah can proclaim to Ahab the truth. There was none like Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up, and he did abominably in following idols. And the message from Elijah was not sugar-coated, it was direct, and it was harsh in its delivery. It's particularly kind of spicy in the King James. Right? He just, he, this is the truth, this is what you've done, this is the judgment coming. And all of its darkness, and all of its blackness, and all of its horror. The point of this is not to encourage you to deliver this exact message to every pro-abortion person in your family, office, or Facebook feed. I'm not saying cut and paste this and just share it on your wall and tag all your pro-abort friends. This is a particular message to a particular person for a particular occasion. But the point is that God says, go tell him the truth again. Go tell him the truth again. Go tell him the Proclaim the darkness again. Proclaim the horror of sin again and the judgment coming. The point is that we must name sin biblically. And we must not be cowed to accommodate with the world at this at any point. We name the sin biblically in all of its darkness, in all of its guilt, in all of its shame, because this is being faithful to the cross. And so we name it. What is it? It's hatred, it's adultery, it's murder, it's lust, it's idolatry, it's prostitution, it's abomination, it's vile affections, it's perversions, it's unnatural affection, it's shameful, whatever the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. 
all excuses, all attempts to water it down, all attempts to, to, to blame, is, is some attempt to, to, to pull away from the hideousness of it, the darkness of it, the blackness of it. And when we do that, it's always an attempt to water down grace. You see, if it's not very dark, then you don't need much light. If it wasn't so very dark, then all you, you just need a little bit of light. And if the sin was, well, it was kind of bad. I mean, you know, I mean, given the circumstances, it wasn't as bad as it looked and it wasn't as bad as it seemed. So then what do you need for that? You just need a little bit of grace. And so as we water down the sin, what we're doing inescapably is watering down the grace. All our excuses, all our blaming, all our victimologies and our rapidly multiplying intersectionalities of victimhood are attempts to lighten certain sins. And this is fundamentally an attack on grace, an attempt to rob the world of God's merciful kindness. You've heard the word intersectionality, maybe some in the news. It's, it's a postmodern uh, philosophical term, and, and the idea behind it is, is this, is this postmodern notion that, that fundamentally at the root of all of our problems in this world are um, basically um, differences of power, uh, power uh, differences. And so people, the reason why people are angry, the reason why people use drugs, the reason why people murder and steal is because there are these power differentials power disparities. And so people with less power are resentful and angry and the people with more power are abusing those who have less power. And so the whole idea of egalitarianism, the, the gospel of complete and utter equality is if we just get everybody back to square one where everybody is exactly equal, utopia will break out because there are no disparities anymore. And so in, a, in an effort to get there, uh, there's all this emphasis on those who are victims, those who are without power, those who do not have any privilege. And, and, and they're and they starting to, it's getting kind of crazy and ridiculous now because this whole idea of intersectionality is that you have multiple uh, victim cards that you can play and the more victim cards you can play, the more, uh, the more empowered you need to be. And so if you're a woman, that's one victim card you can play because you, clearly you've been oppressed. But if you're a black woman, you've been doubly oppressed. And if you're a black female lesbian, you've been triply oppressed. And if you're a, a black female lesbian trans confused person, you're very, very oppressed. And so it goes. This is, what, this is the idea of intersectionality, that you have these multiple intersections of victimhood. Now, on the one hand, of course, there's the problem of you're actually taking sins and just saying, I'm a victim in my sin. But the big picture problem is even if somebody could come up with three or four areas in which they had been victimized in truth, they would still have a problem of their own sin. And, and the reason why we claim these victimologies is because we want a pass I'm using things that, that, are, uh, that we see in the news and we see in the world around us, but of course this happens even in, in Christian homes where we're tempted to make excuses and blame people for our sin. Why, why did you get angry with your wife? Well, it was the fourth time she'd asked me the same question. What are you doing? You're pointing, you're blaming. I had already told her, right? 
Well, I wouldn't have gotten angry at my mom, but it was, the, it was you know, I'd been up all night studying for the exam and I hadn't even eaten breakfast yet. And then she asked if I was gonna clean my room. Of course I was gonna blow up. Or the guy, who, he, was, he was mocking me in the Facebook comments and he, he said everything in the book and of course I blew up at him. He had it coming. This is just our version of intersectionality. Right, I've got this, this problem, this problem, this problem, and so it's a defense of our sin. But here's the thing. Every attempt to water the sin down, every attempt to explain our sin, every attempt, attempt to justify our sin, to defend our sin, and not own it for what it is, is an attempt to water God's grace down. We name sin and all its hideousness because Jesus endured the hideousness of the cross. Right? Jesus died for the black sin. He, he, identif he, he, he died for all of our sin. He, I, he died for the worst sin. He took our lust on himself. He took our hatreds on himself. He took our murder on himself. He took our vile affections on himself. To, to water it down and say that it's anything less than that is to hold the cross at bay and say, well, you know, thanks, Jesus. That was really, really kind of you and all, but, you know, it wasn't quite that bad for me. I mean, I, I little, lost my temper a little bit, but it wasn't full-blown wrath that you died for. Do you see? So we proclaim the darkness of sin so that the light of complete forgiveness might shine on every man. We speak the truth in this love. The point of proclaiming the darkness, the point of proclaiming the truth of sin is because it is precisely in that darkness where Jesus meets us with his light. Paul says these wonderful words in 1 Timothy 1. He's rehearsing the gospel. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. This is the worthy saying, Christ came to save sinners. And what does Paul do? He leans in. <laughs> and I'm the worst. What's our natural inclination? Well, Jesus came to save sinners, and yeah, it's pretty bad. And we lean out. Paul leans in. In the couple of verses before, he says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor. I was, I was murderous, I was, go, I was chasing Christians down, I was throwing them in prison, I was breaking up families, I was doing all these wicked things. But Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And he says, and I obtained mercy so that in me, Jesus Christ might show forth his long suffering as a pattern, as an example to those who would hereafter believe in him to everlasting life. Paul says, God saved me as an example for you. How bad has it been? How long have you run? 
How dark has it gotten? How bitter have you been? How hateful have you been? Where have you gone? What have you done? What have you looked at? So this is the first application. What have you done? What have you thought? What have you said? What have you looked at? What have you failed to do? Do you think you are beyond the reach of God's mercy? Do you think that it is so dark, so disgusting, so broken, so shameful that God cannot have anything to do with you? But the Bible is the story of God's grace. The Bible is the story of God's grace. It's not a wishy-washy grace. It's not him just coming in and just random rainbows and unicorns. It's not him just saying, hey, it's all right, don't worry about it. No, he comes in telling the truth and then bringing the grace. And the grace is so great because the truth is so true. He, he doesn't pull the punches. He doesn't use kid gloves on it. He comes in with his justice, with his perfection, with his holiness, and says, yes, it's that bad. No, it's actually worse. And here is my grace. The Bible is the story of God's grace. This is why you should love the genealogies. Right? Say, wait, what? Don't you love the genealogies? You should love the genealogy. When you get the genealogy, you say, oh, good, right? Why, why? Because these are a bunch of names of people that you don't know, names you can't pronounce, who are real people who lived in this world, who were sinners, who God loved. And he made their names to be written down in this book forever. Isn't that glorious? Right? All of us, we're going to be names one day that nobody knows. And in thousands of years, they won't know how to pronounce our names either. Right? Those names, think about it. Those names, just going. Name, 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 name. Who were they? They were people who lived. They had hopes and dreams. They had children. They had, they were, they had marriages. They went to school. They had homework. They played games. They were real people. And they were fallen and messed up people. They were broken people. And God wrote their names down. Why does God write people's names down? Because he loves them. <laughs> he loves them. He rejoices over them. I don't ever want to forget Jehoka has a Uzzah. <laughs> don't ever want to forget him. What a crazy guy. What a wild guy. What a sinner who I forgave. Long lists of sinners, mostly unknown to us, beloved to their God. The only difference between the saved and the damned is pride. The only difference between the saved and the damned is pride. The saved were not better people. The damned were not worse. The saved merely humbled themselves, cast themselves on God's mercy with faltering cries, God help. God save, I've got a mess, I did this, help. And the damned refused the offer. Just think about this. If God notices the fleeting, desperate humility of an Ahab, will he not notice you when you call out to him? You feel that? You hear that? 
Ahab, after all that, after all that wickedness, says, God, please know. And God says, I see that. If God saved Paul to show forth all long suffering, then this was a pattern for you. And so in the first instance, is this true of you? Is this true of you? Have mercy and truth kissed? Have mercy and truth met in you? Not 30% and 60%. Not a little bit of truth and a little bit of mercy, but have they fully, completely met in you, in Jesus? That you know that all the darkest, blackest stuff that you've ever done, are doing, will do, is all crucified in Christ. The truth is told. There's nothing hidden. There's no black corner that you're afraid of because the light of Jesus is shown there. One of the ways you can gauge this, you know, whether or not you, that's happened to you, whether or not you know that, that mercy and truth have met in Jesus and Jesus dwells in you is that the thought of darkness in you isn't terrifying anymore. You hate the darkness, but you know what to do with the darkness. You despise the darkness, you hate the darkness because the darkness is antithetical to God and so you hate it, you really do. But the thought that, there might, that you might sin, the, the thought that somebody might bring something to you and say, brother, I saw this the other day and you know, what, what's your response? Is your response immediate knee-jerk defensiveness? How could you think I would ever do something like that? Who, who do you think you are? Are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? Or do you know what to do with the dark? You say, if there was some other dark corner that I forgot about, if there was some darkness that crept into my life, God forbid, what would, what would your instinct be? You say, I know what to do. I have the gospel. I have the light of Jesus to shine on it. Bring it. Tell it to me. Now, that doesn't mean everything that everyone brings you is always true or always right, but you're not afraid of the dark because the light of Jesus is in you. You're not afraid of the truth because the mercy of Jesus is always with you. But all of this is also for the world. I started working on this message before the New York thing went down, the, the new law, the abortion law. I started working on this and then the Lord, you know, that all happened and oh boy, here we are. So what's your attitude toward the other Ahabs and Jezebels of this world? Put yourself in Elijah's shoes. Hopefully God is raising up an Elijah to go talk to Governor Cuomo, right? We should be praying for that. There will be someone in his life, someone in this world, someone who has access to Governor Cuomo that will walk into his office and say, Governor Cuomo, what you've just done is wicked and vile and disgusting, and if you do not turn, judgment is coming on you. Or imagine delivering that 
to the New York legislator, you know, legislatures cheering, standing on their feet, cheering the murder of millions of babies. Delivering the same message and just being drowned out by their cheers initially, walking out the door. And then imagine if God gave them repentance. Could you turn around on the steps and walk back in as they've all knelt on the floor saying, what have we done? And could you say, God has seen your humility. Do you hate sin because you love grace? Do you hate the sin in those Ahabs and Jezebels in your life because you long to see God save them? Are you eager for their forgiveness? Can you tell that to God honestly? God, this person is my Ahab. This person is my Jezebel. This person is my arch enemy. Oh God, end the evil. End the wickedness. Let your judgment come, but God save them. Because you love mercy. Because your merciful kindness is great. Do you love that about your God? You know that you love that about your God only and fundamentally because you know that about your God. Because that reality dwells inside you. You know that's already happened with you. That you have received a mercy you don't deserve. The truth has been told about you. And now you're not afraid of any darkness anymore. Our Father and God, we praise you and we thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but you sent your son, Jesus, to go down into the dark, to go down into the grave, to go down into the muck and the mire for us. Father, I pray that you would teach us this wisdom, that mercy and truth would be held together in us because Jesus is in us holding them together. Father, teach us this wisdom so that we might live it in our lives, that we might proclaim your truth fearlessly, with love and in love, longing for every man, every woman to be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A Dutch theologian once said, the word of God is a brook from which a lamb may drink and an ocean from which an elephant can drown. Whether it is hearing God's word preached as we just did, or reading our Bible in private, or eating the word made flesh in the Lord's Supper, we should always remember this twofold reality. God's word is a gentle brook of sweet comfort to those who come in faith to drink of it. But it's also a vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling like a mighty ocean. The Christian finds comfort in the sheer vastness and thunderous power of God's word, but also finds stunning glory in its simple truth that God sent his son to save sinners. The non-Christian sees the exact opposite. Wherever they turn, God's word is an ocean of his justice confronting them with the guilt of their sin 
And when they are invited to the brook of God's grace, their pride sees an insulting abyss, which will swallow all their self-righteousness. To the unbeliever, the word is a raging tsunami of judgment. To the believer, it is a bottomless, shoreless, endless stream of comfort, healing, forgiveness, and love. The unrepentant sinner finds it a horror. The repentant saint finds it an unspeakable joy. This word we are about to eat is meant as a warning to those who take it without faith, and yet it is nourishment to those who believe. As Anarnian might put it, the safest place to be is between the wild paws of the lion. The great and incomprehensible glory of our union with Christ is set before us here this morning in these simple signs of bread and wine, the body and blood of our Savior. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the depths of glory here on this table and for the simple sign it is. There's an endless world of joy represented here which we cannot fully comprehend, but there is solid ground upon which a childlike faith can stand firm in the midst of the fiercest storm. In Jesus' name we do give thanks and amen. Uh, the charge is this. Think, think of the parable that Jesus told of the unforgiving ser- uh, servant where I remember uh, the, he for- the king forgives this uh, great sum of the one servant and then he runs out and finds the, the, the other servant who owes him and strangles him and said, you better pay me back. Um, what's interesting in that story is that we oftentimes gloss over that when the servant goes out and grabs his fellow servant and says, pay me back, he was asking for a sum, roughly a third of a year's salary, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. I don't know about you, but that's, that's, that's not chump change. <laughs> I would want that back. I would want to make sure that I, I got my, 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 my funds back, right? What's interesting, though, is that the, the sum that the, the servant was forgiven by the king was 200,000 years of wages. The point of the, one of the points of the, that parable is, look at the great mercy that God has shown you. Look how, how great a sum, look at how great a forgiveness has been extended to you, and then go out and tell the world, go out and live the same way, forgiving and showing and proclaiming that mercy Uh, far and wide. So hear the benediction of the Lord. The peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son Jesus Christ our Lord and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. Amen.